This week on the show, a dark's garage runs OpenBSD, EuroBSDCon 2021 Call for Papers is out, FreeBSD's IO status displayed and explained by Clara Systems. The state of toolchains in NetBSD is a bit further displayed and the legal ramifications of that. Bandwidth limiting an OpenBSD 6.8 tutorial for you. FreeBSD's port migration to Git and its impact on HardenBSD is what we cover. A TrueNAS update and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 401, OpenBSD Dog Garage, recorded on the 21st of April, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. I'm Tom Jones. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to our 400 plus one episode. We are keep running every every other week um, and you get fresh content for the well every week actually you get fresh content every week with the bsds in there and our headline sounds strange but it's definitely interesting my dog's garage runs open bsd what's this about so sven g writes about checking the temperature in the in the garage where his his dogs his dog sleeps with open bsd and he he says i was inspired by the april 2017 article in undeadly.org about getting open bsd running on the raspberry pi 3b plus it's, it's great to see an article from, from four years ago be relevant today. Um, his goal was to use a, a Raspberry Pi running OpenBSD to monitor the temperature in my garage from my home. My dog, is, my dog has his own little apartment inside the garage, so I want to keep an eye on the temperature. I don't rely on this device. He sleeps inside the house whenever he wants. If anything seems wrong-headed, please chalk it up as a frothy mixture of enthusiasm, ignorance, stubbornness, and just because I wanted to do it this wayness which is the best approach to, to, to any project. Um, Sven bought a temper hum USB sensor, but it might have been defected. It locked up his Raspberry Pi whenever he plugged it in. However, a cheap DHT22 temperature sensor and an Arduino Mega at 25660 lying around uh, was an alternative. The setup is uh, a Raspberry Pi talker in the garage along with the Arduino. The Arduino reads the temperature from the DHT22 and converts it to a binary number and writes the number to the seven digital pins. Call these pins pin 64, pin 32, pin 16, pin 8, pin 4, pin 2, and pin 1. Complicated way to describe some pins. Um, these pins connect to the GPIO on the talker. The talker runs a daemon called GPIO talker. The daemon reads from the GPIO pins, converts the number back to an integer and sends out the temperature as an integer at regular, regular intervals over UDP. The talker has a VPN connection to the Raspberry Pi called Listener inside the house. Listener runs a daemon called GPIO Listener. Uh, the daemon reads the incoming integer over the UDP connection, converts it to binary, writes out to seven... Okay, I didn't get lost. He is saying the same thing. Writes out to, to seven matching pins so you can see what the temperature is as a, as a binary number uh, in lights uh, inside the house. Uh, since he's using OpenBSD, he secures it with an easy-to-secure uh, VPN, as described in the OpenBSD FAQ. Uh, and OpenBSD lets him easily add security features to the daemons. One example is to be able to run the daemons as unprivileged users using Pledge. Oh, no, he says, I tried using Pledge, but my guess is that the necessary I.O. control permissions are not available for accessing GPIO pins based on reading of man, Pledge, and TTY section. 
In this particular setup, he uses an access point that is not connected to the internet. However, one could easily do so creating a simple web interface. It might also be possible, depending on the number of pins available, to also monitor humidity or other things such as formaldehyde levels, depending on the sensor attached to the Arduino. Instead of having an alert pin lighting up an LED, you could attach a relay and have a big lamp or a radio or something go off. And then below this, he goes into quite a lot of detail into um, how OpenBSD is, is set up on the Raspberry Pi, the, the code which runs on the Arduino to speak to the DH22, um, and then the, what the talker is and the GPIO setup and the VPN setup. Um, and so there's, there's loads of information in this article that explains exactly how we did it with quite actually quite c complete documentation. So if you wanted to do this the same sort of thing, this would be a great starting point to do it with OpenBSD. He says in, in, closing, in closing thoughts, you could also add RRD tool to the listener to store and graph the data. I would still like to change the CH root permission, CH root the demons, use pledge or unveil and find out the settings for slash dev slash GPIO. Uh, OpenBSD made this possible and easy. The detailed man pages are clear, easily available source code made this simple to figure out. And he promises to make a man, a MDoc man page for the demons soon. Cool. Nice project. Yeah. And like all of these projects, he notes at the end, you know, the kind of rush you feel when you typed GPIO CTL therm one and heard the air conditioner turn on <laughs> and then run zero and heard it turn off is just something that it's hard. To there's, there's nothing quite like doing a, a hardware project and making the world change. At, at, it, it's just not the same. Hello world is, uh, you know, it's boring after the first time, but getting an LED to turn on is always magic. I especially just like the idea of actually outputting the temperature in binary using the LEDs. It kind of reminds me of uh, those uh, ticks clocks, the ones where it, it looks like a bunch of Tetris blocks almost, and it's just how many lights in each segment are lit up tells you the time, but they keep changing every couple of seconds, even though the time's not changing. Or ThinkGeek used to actually sell a binary clock that would tell the time in binary, including the date, I think, or whatever. And you, you just had to know how to add it up. Yeah, I had one of those and it was a nightmare to read. I don't know. I don't know how anyone lives with that. You know what would be great? To have this presented at a conference, which brings us to our next item. EuroBSDCon 2021, Call for Papers is out for a while now. And so projects like this would make a good paper or a good talk there. Uh, yeah, details. Uh, pretty sure the conference is going to be virtual yeah. this year. Uh, I know they were on the fence before, but I'm pretty sure it's been decided now that it will be virtual. Uh, so that means it's much easier for people to contribute. Uh, so if you've done anything interesting with any of the BSDs and want to talk about it, you should submit it. Uh, the program committee is very happy to have as many submissions as possible. And they're important to highlight in the, the actual call that the program committee is inviting BSD developers and users to submit uh, innovative and original talks. And the, the users one is always so much harder to get um, submissions from. And in the end, they, they're almost always the, the more popularly attended talks because you, the conferences get loads of people that are interested in BSD and use it as a platform in their jobs. And there is a good proportion of developers, but most of the people want to learn about how other people do things. And so if you have a project, even like something that is, you know, a sensor for your dog, that can make a, a fascinating 45 minute presentation. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the point of the conferences is to talk about cool things we did with BSD. Uh, that doesn't have to be developing some new subsystem. It's just, you know, oftentimes it's how you hooked a bunch of these different things together. Or, you know, I did one on just how I tweaked and tuned SSH to be able to do ZFS replication faster. 
uh, or, you know, anything like that. Just anything interesting you've done uh, is a great talk. And, and yeah, like Thomas said, more user talks are better and they're often the best, the highlights of the conference uh, because it's actually someone doing something, not just writing some code. And the, mm. the user talks are always really helpful for developers because in the user talks, people tend to highlight the the sticking points they have. And obviously documentation could always be better, but sometimes sticking points are genuinely bugs that you just never see if you're working on software, but a user might see it every day. Yeah, or you know, as a developer, it's often, I never thought somebody would try to use it that way or would assume that it was meant to be done this way, not that way. And just, you know, there's nothing more illuminating than standing behind someone and watching them trying to install FreeBSD uh, and seeing what they run into with the installer. I've done it so many times now, I can literally do it blindfolded uh, and install FreeBSD on ZFS without looking at the screen. Uh, but there's so many things that can be done better just by being able to watch other people try to do it. So yes, more user talks. Don't be afraid, just submit. So conference takes place uh, from September 16th to 19th and uh, submissions for the call for papers can be done until uh, May, where is that? I just had it, 26th here. So don't wait, get there, get the proposals early. It's also helping the conference organizers because then they know, hey, there's actually submissions. We can have a conference. Yeah, most of the submissions tend to come in the last two days or so. Uh, if you get yours in early, you could make our lives so much easier. And, you know, the first good idea you see is the one that sticks with you, right? So it improves your chance of getting accepted. It also proves that you're not, you know, putting it together at the last minute. <laughs> Who does that? Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So next is an interesting one, FreeBSD Iostat. It's another uh, Clara article over at clarasystems.com. And this time they wrote about, you heard it, Iostat. And it's a useful utility that I run often when I need to figure out, hey, you know, what's going on, I.O. Uh, in this system. So they write that IOSTAT provides a window into the IO effort of the storage subsystem. I like how they say IO effort. Uh, you can use it to determine usage patterns, bottlenecks, and poor behavior at a glance. It can produce data to support conclusions and suggest further avenues of investigation when used judiciously. In this article, we will dissect the output and introduce disk subsystem troubleshooting using statistical output from IOSTAT. So for the people who have never run IOSTAT, they provide a little output here. So you can see what uh, the display looks like. So then they decode this output because you need to figure out what does TIN mean or tout or other things. And they say uh, the TIN is the typewriter bytes in the, the D. Oh yeah, see the D flag and it Reducing cognitive yeah, load. So thing. by default, it, it does a summary of the whole system, which includes the typewriter bit, which doesn't really make sense anymore. Yeah. Uh, so if you just care about disks, you can use the dash D flag to only look at disks and it won't uh, output the other stuff. But it also talks about uh, what all the other acronyms and so on mean there. Uh, but how you can use this to look at how much reading and writing is going on for you know, the, uh, the number of operations, the amount of data and how long or milliseconds it's taking for each of those things to happen and how long the queue is. And that can really uh, tell you a lot about the system, uh, you know, and it's quite useful for that. Although one thing I did find uh, when working on articles like this, uh, I didn't write this one, but I reviewed it, is that there's also a couple of places in um, some of this stuff where we haven't kept things up to date. Uh, for example, there's a dash T where you can filter disks by type 
and you can put, you know, uh, SCSI or IDE and so on. And I think you do IDE to get ATA devices and SCSI to get the DA devices. Uh, and it probably should support an alias for SATA to be like the ATA devices. But because of the way it works, when it sees SATA, it just sees SA and thinks it's a tape drive. Mm, huh, okay. <laughs> and there's the CPU display there because it also is important to know because uh, CPU plays a role in I.O. even with the um, separate I.O. management that we have on motherboards these days uh, because is uh, the CPU statistics can be used to verify that the system was under load while also looking at the storage. So both are kind of usually the bottleneck. So it's CPU and I.O. Uh, they as, explain a couple more of these extra switches you can pass to IOSTAT. And further down, there's a, a section about trending. So IOSTAT will repeat its output on demand with the W and then the second um, parameter, like five seconds, two seconds, whatever. A large delay uh, between the reports produces an overview that hides burst and throws, through, throws, throws, yeah. Wow. Uh, in favor of a broad indication of throughput. Decreasing the value below 1.0 will allow fine time steps. So that's slash or dash W 0.050, for example, will produce a report every 50 milliseconds. This resolution may be helpful if you want to see bursts of I.O. or are looking for a fine-grained I.O. pattern. At the opposite time scale, capital I provides the cumulative numbers since boot time, which is also interesting, like how much has the system uh, done in I.O. Uh, there's a section about reducing cognitive load as well. Uh, it's easy to get torrents of numbers out of IOSTAT. Yeah, there's a lot of data. But resist the urge to collect more data than you need. So filter out only, as Alan mentioned, certain devices or certain groups of devices. Uh, so by default, IOSTAT includes CPU and TTY classes, which may or may not be interesting but directly probative when diagnosing storage subsystem behavior. So if you're only looking at storage, you don't need the you know, keyboard <laughs> and other things like that. So adding minus D to the command line will mute these as it is unlikely if you're troubleshooting like the Teletime subsystem. Yeah, cool. Uh, there's a parting caution, caution section there. IOSTAT is like the top command, providing indicators at a glance. However, a glance is insufficient to fully characterize a complex system. Don't use a single glance with top or IOSTAT to make critical decisions. Uh, because IOSTAT reports the statistical mean as a primary indicator, which means the infamous for hiding outliers and blurring modal distributions. Yeah. If IOSTAT reports a value that is unusual, investigate further with a tool that produces better statistical indicators. A histogram of latency is more useful than a mean. Tools such as DTrace can generate these indicators and dig much deeper. IOSTAT output varies in format across platforms. Therefore, you should interpret the output in the context that you're looking at. They also list a couple of related tools, VMstat, GStat, SmartCDL, SysStat, and Zpool IOSTAT, which I think will get their own uh, articles in the future. Uh, I think Zpool IOSTAT, we already have an article on the Clara website. Huh. Although I think there's a second edition that will need to come because there's a bunch of new stuff. Uh, with OpenZFS 2.0, you can get histograms of the uh, the io size oh yes so like you know most of the reads and writes are they 4k or 128k and so on and also the uh read and write latencies oh yeah the zills uh statistics and such yeah or the, well, uh, the iostat just keeps track of a lot more stuff in openzfs 2.0 yeah very nice yeah so next up uh, we have the state of the tool chain on netbsd uh, 
Uh, so this is from uh, just a couple days ago, and it says, well, FreeBSD and OpenBSD have switched to using LLVM and Clang as their base system compiler. NetBSD chose a different path and remains with GCC and binutils regardless of the license change to GPL v3. However, it does mean that the NetBSD project endorses this license and the NetBSD Foundation has issued a statement about its position on the subject, which uh, I'll read from in just a minute. Um, but to say realistically, NetBSD is more or less tied to GCC as it supports more architectures than the other BSDs, some of which will likely never be supported by LLVM. Because NetBSD wants to keep running on everything, including some old stuff that GCC supports and LLVM doesn't, but aren't current now, so it doesn't make sense to add support to LLVM, it made sense for NetBSD to do it this way. So as of NetBSD 9.1, the latest version, or the latest release version, all supported platforms have uh, recent versions of GCC, uh, starting with at least version 7.5, and bin utils 2.31.1, built into the base system. Uh, newer and older versions of GCC can also be installed by a package source. Uh, they go all the way back to GCC 3.3.6, which I remember OMBSD used to have imported for one or two platforms that needed it, uh, and all the way up to GCC 10.2, which is very, very new. Uh, the focus on GCC doesn't mean that the GNU and LLVM toolchains cannot coexist within NetBSD, uh, and work has uh, in fact been done on that during the last decade to make that happen. Despite not being built by default in official NetBSD releases, LLVM has been imported into the NetBSD source tree since 2013. Daily images are built from NetBSD-current for selected platforms, at least AMD 64, i3d6, and uh, EVB ARM. Uh, with the MK LLVM and have LLVM build options enabled so that they will actually have LLVM and Clang. Moreover, NetVSD has invested a lot of work in LLVM during the past few years, including funding uh, developers Camille Rektorowski and Mikhail Gorny to work on sanitizers and debuggers and other bits of LLVM, uh, like LLDB. They both published several dozen articles on the NetBSD blog along the way, I think most of which we've covered on this show at some point, retracing their journey. Uh, Camille's final report about upstreaming support for the LLVM sanitizers summarizes all the work that's been accomplished. Thanks to this work, sanitizer support on NetBSD is mature and mostly on par with Linux. As a result, because LLVM is upstream uh, for the GCC sanitizers, they are also available in GCC on NetBSD. Similarly, uh, Mikhail's report on his LLDB work details the achievements on the debugger front. Uh, as always, work continues and keeps the tool chain up to date and upstreaming any local changes whenever possible. So in particular, uh, because NetBSD has decided to bundle GPL v3 software into the base system uh, by default, uh, they've added uh, a readme to the um, GPL3 directory in the source tree. So similar in, in FreeBSD, when we have the any GPL code uh, in the tree, we only have GPL v2. Uh, but we put it in a separate directory, so it's easy to see which code is which. Uh, so in the GPLv3 directory they have, they have a readme that says, this code or the code within the source slash external slash GPLv3 directory may have serious legal impacts if you are a company and redistribute or change this code as the company uh, or uh, as a company holding patents. We recommend you contact your lawyer before using this code. Please do not import new GPLv3 projects without the NetBSD board's approval. And then they have a statement for the NetBSD Foundation's position on the GPLv3. NetBSD provides source code with the goal for everyone to be able to use it uh, for whatever they want as long as they follow the simple license terms. 
Historically, most of the original code used uh, a Berkeley-style license, and NetBSD's own code uses a simple two-clause Berkeley-style license. To summarize, modifications are allowed, the source code may be redistributed, and binaries or executables may be distributed as long as the copyright and disclaimer are included. NetBSD's code may be extended and sold without sharing back the source code changes. NetBSD also uses and redistributes source code and binaries from uh, source code obtained from external third parties. This source code is segregated by placing it in the source slash external directory and the sys source external directory, which are categorized per license. Examples include the ISC bind, Solaris ZFS, CVS, GNU bin utils, Postfix, the x.org windowing system, and other software that is primarily maintained outside of NetBSD. In some cases, the third-party software is licensed under terms that conflict with NetBSD's own goals. For example, the GPL v2 is a copyleft license. It requires that anyone who distributes uh, executables or object code based on that source code also make their source code and modified versions available to the public under the GPL. NetBSD's own code doesn't require companies to share those changes. The GPL v3 includes clauses that may cause additional burdens on developers or companies who may modify the source code or ship a product based on the source code. The following summarizes some of those issues. Uh, the license allows the user to circumvent measures preventing software changes. Number three, this, also, uh, this is also known as the TV TiVoization clause. Uh, in addition, this clause uh, is an anti-DRM, anti-DMCA clause. Uh, as the developer uh, allows an end user to attempt to circumvent or break the technology protection measures. Also, any information or authorized keys required to install or run modified versions must also be provided uh, with the source code. The patent clause says that copyright holders grant a non-exclusive worldwide royalty-free patent license. You may be required to extend the royalty-free patent license to all recipients or future users and developers who use this code. In addition, you may not uh, initiate uh, litigation for a patent infringement against anyone that has the license. Uh, we recommend companies redistribute GPL v3 license code to consult their lawyers before using any of it. It is the intent of the NetBSD project to use as little GPL license software as possible to provide maximum freedom for developers and distributors of NetBSD derived products. So yeah, licensing is hard uh, and NetBSD was in a very precarious situation there where uh, a lot of their platforms couldn't be switched to LLVM like they were in FreeBSD and OpenBSD. Uh, and so it seems they've made the best of the bad situation. Okay. Next, it's time for the news roundup this week. We have bandwidth limiting on OpenBSD 6.8 over at the Data Swamp. So this is a, an article by Celine. Um, and she writes, I will explain how to limit bandwidth on OpenBSD using its firewall, PF, which is the packet filter, Q, uh, PF's queuing capabilities. is a very powerful feature, but it may be hard to understand at first. What is very important to understand that it's technically not possible to limit the bandwidth of the whole system, because once data is getting on your network interface, it's already there and got by your router. What is possible is to limit the upload rate to cap the download rate, okay? And so she describes the prerequisites. So her home router allows her to download at 1600 kilobits a second and upload it at just under 100 kilobits a second. A very easy way to limit bandwidth is to calculate a, a percentage of your upload that should, apply, that should apply that ratio to your download speed as well. 
This may not be very precise and may require tweaks. Uh, and she offers a PF syntax to do this, and she says that has to be defined in kilobits, not kilobytes. Um, and so she shows a snippet of the, the PF conf, uh, and what you do is you create a, a queue um, for the network interface you're going to use, and you set a, a bandwidth limit on the queue, um, and then you set a queue for all the traffic, and it shows how to load this up. And she says, this is only a global queuing rule, which will apply to everything on the system. This can be greatly extended for a specific need. For example, I use the program Oasis, which is a daemon for peer-to-peer -peer social network. Sometimes it has upload bursts because someone is syncing against my computer. And then she shows a rule which allows uh, a queue to be matched against uh, a particular user, which is a feature in OpenBSDPF, which is in, in FreeBSDPF. Um, and yeah, and so she shows here uh, um, the actual very small number of commands it takes and, and configuration to set a bandwidth limit with a PF like this. Yeah, I know IPFW does have the ability to make firewall rules that match against the user that owns the socket though, right? I am not sure. I know that PF on OpenBSD, when you use log rules, you can log the user in the process, which is generating packets. So rather than doing um, D message logging, when you actually have it create a PF log socket and you get something you can attach TCP dump to. Uh, but it doesn't do that on FreeBSD because we don't populate this information. And so you might be able to do this through IPFW, but it's probably a different mechanism for how PF on OpenBSD does it. And I, I spoke to, to Christoph and some other people, and I think it's because we don't carry around this information in the socket and there's some other complexities. Uh, and the, the cool idea I had was just stop. But I'm pretty sure IPFW does it. Okay. Um, uh, and so I wonder if the PFIL hooks even have the stuff for it, and it might actually not be that hard to make it work in PF if it just cribbed th it from... That IPFW. sounds like a great project that somebody that wanted to learn kernel oh, development nice work. <laughs> I see what you did there. Well, we pass it to the community. Everyone who's listening is happy to <laughs> join that effort. And anybody with free space <laughs> on their to-do list. Back in the FreeBSD 4 days, I had a bunch of stuff like this where I had count rules for each user. And then I'd do an IPFW show once an hour and then IPFW zero them and make a graph and be able to tell which users on the system were using up all the bandwidth because I had it. Was it always yeah. the Allen no. user? No, it was, a, it was a shell server. So there were people paying for accounts on it and there were like 100 different users using it all the time. You know, it was a, it was a real Unix system back in the day. Yeah, time check. Yeah, yeah. Uh, IPFW has a user group ID. Yeah. I don't know how that works. I don't know how it works either. <laughs> I do know that it mostly works uh, and that it, I've used it in a very similar way to do firewall rules that match uh, and then fed into pipe rules that went into the dummy net for queuing. And, you know, you can do things like take a user who's misbehaving and make their internet only do five kilobytes a second or something. <laughs> Here's the news from the HardenBSD camp. Uh, FreeBSD's ports migration uh, to Git, you may have heard about this or not, uh, and its impact on HardenBSD. So Sean Webb writes here that uh, FreeBSD completed their port migration from Subversion to Git recently. I guess some users were kind of, uh, you know, stunned by that because their Subversion client didn't update anymore or didn't give them anything new. Uh, so yes, we're on Git now for the ports tree uh, but here back to the HardenBSD article prior to the official switch we used the read-only mirror FreeBSD had on GitHub 
The new repo is at a different location, so cjit.freebsd.org slash ports. Uh, cursory glance at the new repo will show that the commit hashes changed. This presents an issue with HardenBSD's ports tree in our merge-based workflow. So he's going to uh, archive their old ports repo and creates a new one. Yeah, the URLs are listed in each of those. Uh, due to the nature of their changes and how far back their history goes, creating a new repo is necessary. Attempting to do a git merge dash dash allow dash unrelated histories works, but brings GitLab to its knees, eventually failing. So for projects downstream of HardenBSD, uh, using the same kind of merge-based workflow, you will need to effectively do the same thing we did. So he describes the process, which is the first thing you need to do is match the last commit. He provides, I'm not reading that, <laughs> with its corresponding commit in FreeBSD's old ports repo. So he provides both hashes to compare. The second is to clone FreeBSD's new repo to a temporary location. Then third, generate a diff between the old repo and the new provides the same uh, tashes here. The fourth step is to create a hardened BSD slash main branch. The fifth is to apply the diff created in step three. And the sixth, of course, is to commit and push from there on. Instead of committing directly to the master branch, we created a new branch, hardened BSD slash main. Uh, upstream's branch in our repo is freebsd slash main. And Sean apologizes for the breakage downstream uh, to us. Okay. Uh, oh, he made a best, yeah. So I know when when FreeBSD changed its source repo, uh, there there was a similar change and there were instructions on how to migrate. And I used those to migrate a bunch of our repos that are in GitLab over. Uh, although I think we only had a couple hundred commits uh, difference from, from FreeBSD versus, uh, I'm guessing the HardenBSD ports has more than that. But uh, there were three or four different workflows described in the, the Git migration docs that FreeBSD did. Uh, but those were all around targeting the source thing, but the, the same procedure would work for uh, ports yep. as well. So yeah, I just assume a lot fewer people have uh, very diverged ports trees uh, than they might have. Yeah, so don't throw everything away yet. Um, just do the diffs between old and new. And so that should uh, display what's uh, different or what needs to be moved over. Cool, so Sean provides all the links that you need to know. And from there on, it should be easier. He plans to restore the every six hour autosync script this weekend. While there's still dust to settle, he plans to do the things himself, and the dust should be settled this weekend. Cool. Great that they catched on. Uh, so next up, we have TrueOS 12.0 U3 has been released. Uh, so this is TrueNAS Core, basically the successor to FreeNAS. Um, they say, IX is decided to announce 12.0 U3. It was released today and marks an important milestone in the transition from FreeNAS to TrueNAS. TrueNAS 12.0 is now considered by Ajax to be higher quality than the previous uh, FreeNAS 11.3 U5. Uh, the new TrueNAS documentation site has been has also reached a point where it is uh, has more content and capabilities than uh, the FreeNAS one, and they think that TrueNAS 12 is ready for mission critical enterprise deployments now. There's a bunch of new features, improved performance, and overall higher quality. Uh, is uh, TrueNAS 12 is now the default release for new systems. Any new bugs or security vulnerabilities found in 12.3 will be resolved through updating to TrueNAS 12. Uh, they say, and how do we make the assessment? Uh, over 50% of the FreeNAS 11.3 systems and 20% of the TrueNAS Enterprise systems have been now upgraded to uh, TrueNAS 12. These transitions since 12.0 U2 have been very smooth with TrueNAS 12.0 OpenZFS 2.0 has outperformed the previous release of ZFS in our lab and in user environments and has proven to be robust and stable at scale. 
So some of the new features that are available in the minor update are they now have a CCTL to control whether NV dims get zeroed. Um, they have some enhancements to the API, some fixes to the smart tool when you use the debug mode. Uh, they also fixed a or added a config upload and factory reset setting for the high availability version of TrueNAS and added an alert if you have a BIOS that has a known issue and needs to be updated. They also added a bunch of new ZFS ARC stats to the reporting, uh, real-time reporting window. Um, also added the uh, network bandwidth per interface uh, and added a bunch of new querying options there. Um, they also added the ability, uh, a bunch more MVDIM stuff, like being able to get firmware info and the ability to roll back uh, firmware versions of NVDIMs um, and added support for uh, a bunch of other bits, including fixing a, a bug where JQ was trying to read a file that didn't exist. <laughs> and then there's uh, a very long list of bug fixes that were included in this as well. Uh, they do note that the um, this is still around since I think 12.0u2, the persistent L2ARC feature is still disabled by default. While the underlying issues have been fixed, this setting continues to be disabled by default uh, as an additional, uh, as there's additional performance investigation still ongoing. If you would like to have the persistent L2ARC feature, they explain how to enable it in the GUI. So on to the beastie bits. Ah, yes, we have a uh, join provides package source for macOS 10. Great. Another source is always good. Yeah, so package source uh, works on a lot of different platforms, uh, but Joint is actually producing binaries that you can just download instead of having to compile for OS X. Okay, and they say they now have um, primarily built packages for macOS Mojave and for Big Sur on Intel. So it's 10.14 and 11.0. Um, and they're providing their previous package sets on 64-bit Sierra 10.12 and Mavericks 10.9. And 32-bit Snow Leopard packages for for users who wish to keep their software up to date. Nice, and they show some examples of being able to install four different versions <laughs> of FFmpeg on your Mac, which you know, compared to using Brew or whatever and having to compile it all, uh, this has uh, a lot of advantages. Mostly being a lot faster and not, you know, burning up CPU on your yeah, laptop. Yeah, someone else has done the compiling for you. As a very useful developer resource. Yeah, definitely. That's why we like people who provide packages in any kind of form. Well, I suppose that's something we could have mentioned in the, the FreeBSD 13 release notes uh, last episode, but FreeBSD can actually be built from OS Right, cross-compiling. There's a little Python script that takes care of the bootstrapping and actually allows you to compile uh, FreeBSD from uh, macOS, which can make you know, developing and testing stuff on your laptop a lot easier, especially if you just want to commit a small fix to FreeBSD uh, and don't necessarily have a FreeBSD machine around all the time. Yeah. Then we have archives of old IRIX documentation. Uh, Silicon Graphics Tech Pups was the library of hardware and software documentation for Silicon Graphics range of MIPS slash IRIX systems. It was freely available on the web without need for an account or a service contract. The end of general availability for those products was December 29th, 2006. Ah, that's a while ago. And IRIX has been unsupported since the end of December 2013. Finally, in February 2016, Silicon Graphics Internal International Corp outsourced its support site to a third party and discontinued the TechPubs site. 
The aim of this site is to keep the wealth of TechPub's information available to hobbyists who like to play with MIPS or IRIX systems. This site does not publish documentation for current products of Silicon Graphics International, but is restricted to documentation of hardware and software from before December 29th, 2006. And there is a curator who you can contact, and here you can find all the IRIX versions uh, you are looking for in PDF and zipped form. It's good to have this uh, this resource around so that people can can bring back old computers. There's definitely a big community of uh, retro Unix, Unix enthusiasts that uh, want to recreate Jurassic Park. Yeah, why not? I mean, why? <laughs> this is exactly the purpose. And who knows what things they discover. It's always good to have that resource available. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, how much documentation has disappeared over the years. Uh, you know, when companies don't bother with a product anymore or go out of business or just, you know, things are end of life. Uh, and being able to preserve a lot of that documentation, even if it's just uh, as a historic curiosity rather than as something that might actually be useful to someone. Uh, I think it's it's better to be able to have access to that stuff than not. And so rather than uh, old documentation, we also have uh, a very modern FreeBSD Developer Summit. And so the FreeBSD Foundation is happy to host the June 2021 uh, FreeBSD Developer Summit from the 9th to the 11th of June. And it's going to run as half-day sessions for each of the days. And it requires registration through Eventbrite. Uh, In-person developer summits have a limit of the number of people that you can fit into a building. Um, but for a virtual developer summit, it's a chance for you to come and see how our internal discussions uh, happen uh, and how we how we make progress. And so this would be a great thing if you're interested in doing FreeBSD development or if you're interested in the direction of the project. This is normally when we, we figure out how to get through milestones or what we're going to do in the future. And we have our famous have, need, want sessions. And so this is available and you can register and you can find more information through the FreeBSD Foundation's website. Cool. Nice that they're doing that. And uh, thanks to the people who organized all that and are still uh, you know, keeping the community together this way. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by our friends at Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now and start making secure online backups of your data. Because you know, even paranoid people need backup. Tarsnap uh, is a very interesting service because the client is open source for you to use. Now it's not under an open source license, but you can basically get the code, review it yourself and compile it and make sure that it does what it says it does. And it's available as a binary for any OS you can think of really. All the BSDs, Linux, Mac OS, uh, Sigwin for Windows, or the Windows subsystem for Linux on Windows as well uh, via Ubuntu. And it's simple pay-as-you-go service. Rather than being able to get a surprise monthly bill or something, you just put money into the system and then use it up uh, as you make backups. Uh, and so you can't ever spend more money than you put into it. It makes it very easy to keep a handle on your budget. Uh, but I've been using it for quite a few years. It's very nice. Uh, a simple tar-like command line uh, takes all the files in my business directory and my personal tax directories and puts them together into a nice tar file. Uh, the segmentation and deduplication feature finds which parts of which files changed and makes the smallest possible change to send up to the internet. So, you know, the main use case for Tarsnap was being able to back up your laptop when you're on the road. So you don't have fast internet to upload uh, the blocks, so you need to get as small as possible. So the segmentation, deduplication, and compression 
get down to the minimum amount of data you can you need to send to the internet uh, and then you encrypt and sign that so that it doesn't matter how bad the wi-fi is or whatever you know that the data goes to the cloud where no one can read it except for you that has the key and uh, that when you get it back to restore it that you can tell that it hasn't been tampered with so for just 25 cents per gigabyte uh, you can back up as much data as you need uh, as safely as it can possibly be done. So head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now and get started. Uh, all you gotta do is put some money in, download the client uh, and add a cron tab entry and you're off to the races. If you wanna get a more advanced setup, you can even grab Michael W. Lucas's book, Tarsnap Mastery, which has all kinds of great recipes for making good backups. Now it's time for feedback and questions. We always love getting feedback and questions to our email address, BSD, well, well, feedback at BSD now to be actually. BSD content, show ideas, questions is exactly what we are looking for. And that's what we cover here in this part. Uh, the first one that we have this week is Andre uh, about splitting ZFS arrays. Ooh, or just one. Uh, he writes, hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT, and Tom. Uh, thanks again for all your work for giving us our weekly BSD fix. Sure, you're welcome. As promised, I'll keep my questions trickling in for the feedback and questions. Excellent. My TrueNAS migration from a 5-disc RAID Z1 with 4 terabyte drives to an array with just 3 disks in Z1 by using a degraded array, 2 disks and a file, worked flawlessly. Good. However, my only gripe for using this method would be that the ZFS naming of the drives gets messed up. Yeah. The drive that replaced the file does not get an uh, ADA designation, which tickles my slightly Sheldonese senses. Excellent. Uh, now to my question of today. I have been a bad boy and not implemented a decent backup for my server. Ah, bad, bad boy. I have some smaller disks which I fill through a Windows desktop and store at work. A second offsite server is not in the picture for now. Last Black Friday, I managed to get some good deal on a pair of 6TB Seagate USB drives. I would like to use ZFS snapshots, excellent, and replication to create a rolling backup between the server and my desk at work. I have several snapshotting lifetimes and frequencies based on the volatility of the data. I have unsuccessfully tried to find guides online, but have not been able to translate an eSetter guide for my use. My plan is to do a replication of several data set snapshots to the first USB drive. Not all the data uh, has to be backed up. I can always re-rip those CDs <laughs> and take this uh, drive off site. The second drive remains attached to the server, receiving all the same and the new snapshots. After a week, the second drive is taken off site and the first is returned to receive updated snapshots. I've tried this, but TrueNAS did not like it and failed to start the replication. Is this plan viable with ZFS or, I sh or should I settle for RSync? Oh, yes. And if yes, would it be possible for ZFS to write the same replication process to both USB drives? Or do I need to set up duplicate replication setups? So the easy way to do this definitely would be each of those to be a separate pool. And then I think TrueNAS wouldn't have so much trouble with it. Also, if you're going to remove the drives, you want to export the pool in TrueNAS before you pull the drive. And that will make it less unhappy at you. So if you're going to not have the drives both plugged in at once, you definitely want two separate pools. You might be able to get away with doing something where they're one pool and you have both disks plugged in and then you take one of them off site and keep updating the other one and then when you bring the first disk back to the main site and connect it the the dirty log would be able to catch up that mirror with all the stuff it's missed since it's been offline although if it's older than 
a couple of hours, ZFS might just decide to resilver the whole disk, which is less helpful. Um, so I think the best bet is two separate pools and then just incremental replication. Uh, you'll just have to, you know, adjust where you're starting the incremental from uh, based on, you know, when you switch from the disk that's more up to date to the disk that's less up to date, it'll have the incremental will have to start far enough back. Uh, and it means you'll have to maintain at least a bookmark, if not a snapshot, of the snapshots going back as old as the older of the two drives you're replicating. Mm, okay. Um, for the description on the disk, um, sometimes you can solve this by doing a zpool export and then doing the zpool import with dash D, uh, and you can specify either the list of devices or just the directory. And basically, if you do zpool import dash D slash dev slash GPT, and then the pool name, it will only look in the directories you specified with the dash D flag for the disks. And then you can consistently get all of the same designators. Uh, you can also just set the loader.conf variables to disable the types you don't like. TrueNAS really loves to use the GPT IDs because they're unique, but I find them unreadable as a human. Uh, so I set, I think it's kern.geom.label.gpdid.enable equals zero. And then that type of label doesn't get created. And so you can disable all the types you don't like, and then it'll only have the types you do like. Cool. So thanks for your question and the nice salutation here in German as well. Freundliche Grüße. Um, <laughs> next up is Bruce with a command change uh, question, I guess. Uh, he writes, hi, Alan and Benedict and JT and Tom. Uh, BSD Now is still my favorite podcast. I had a quick question about ZFS Snapshot. Cool, uh, let's hear it. I was wondering when this change happened to list ZFS snapshots. I was able to create the snapshots fine before an upgrade and when I tried to list all of them so I could destroy them at the end of the upgrade, FreeBSD 11.4 uh, patch level nine, I had difficulty since now wanted additional ZFS feature flags, I think. The old command was ZFS list dash T snapshot. The new command is ZFS list minus RT all. Both of those would be the same. Uh, except for TL would show data sets and volumes Everything. and snapshots yeah. instead of only snapshots. The dash R is what makes it recursive. Uh, so ZFS list dash T snapshot with nothing else is def is recursive by default. But if you specify anything after the word snapshot there, then it'll only list that thing. And you might want recursive in order to get more data yeah. out of it. Uh, there was apparently a follow-up question. Yeah, and that reads, is there a different command that now lists no data sets available after you remove all the snapshots? So if you do ZFS list dash T snapshot uh, and there are no snapshots, I would expect it to say no data sets available. Uh, I feel like there's some context we're not getting. Yeah, here. I think there's something missing or uh, he's doing different. Yeah, but in particular, if you do dash T all, um, then it will list things other yeah, than everything. snapshots. Uh, I don't understand why he wants to verify that all snapshots are destroyed, because normally you don't want to delete every <laughs> no. snapshot. Only it's in rare cases. Uh, but no, there's not been a change to how that works. Now, there is a pool property, I think. A checkpoint? It's a pool property that controls whether ZFS list includes snapshots by default or not. The default is not to also list snapshots, but you can uh, set a property so that when you do ZFS list, it includes snapshots by default. Uh, but, you know, if you have a lot of snapshots, you probably don't want that because A, it clutters it up and B, it mm. will make the list slower. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that's for this question. I feel sorry. It's like uh, we need some like network questions or something. Yeah. Uh, now people recognize him on the show being more regular than 
the other times we will bef- i think we'll get some in the future so this this part I is think not we have just some too it's just we have to have a glut <laughs> of ZFS questions it's not just zfs only we had other questions as well so networking is just fine um and a dan writes is it our dan annoyances with zfs so that goes uh, dear Alan, Benedict, JT, and special guest Tom, excellent, someone has caught on, in a recent episode of the best podcast in the universe, I'm reading this, this is not what I'm adding, this is just what people sent, to, uh, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for that, uh, BSD now, I heard you asking for questions, I was thinking about that, and I realized that I'm dealing with one not so much discussed annoyance in ZFS, and Alan might have an answer for that. I run two Linux VPS instances from two different providers in two different European countries, and I sync data from active VPS to the other secondary VPS. I started with this process many years ago, since I always knew that one provider can burn down like OVH, oh yes, or more likely they can shut down my account for no reason or go out of business. If something like that happens, I can easily add a few virtual CPUs to the secondary instance and make it active by changing DNS to its, ISP, to its IP. Uh, approximately two years ago, I started using ZFS for this unidirectional data replication, and I automated snapshotting and replication of approximately 250 gigabytes simply using shell scripts and cron. I have many ZFS datasets in tree-like structures, or in one. Uh, in other words, there is only one dataset on top of the root dataset, uh, the pool dataset, and that dataset has more than one dataset, and those datasets have more datasets, and so on. The single dataset on top of the root pool dataset makes it easy for raw replication that I have to use since that single dataset is encrypted and all other datasets inherit the encryption. I have two logical types of snapshots. Technically, they're all just snapshots, but I use different naming conventions to differentiate between automatic snapshots and manual. Manual start with date and time and description, and automatic will start with word auto and then date and time. There are two annoyances in this setup. First, a few datasets in this tree-like structure have data that can be regenerated. It is not important to snapshots or to snapshot them or send over. The scheduled automated snapshots are simply done by ZFS snapshot dash r slash pool uh, pool slash first underscore dataset. And these are not important datasets are therefore also snapshotted and sent to the secondary instance. I could create another dataset on top or root. A pool dataset for this type of data that shouldn't be snapshotted and replicated, but I really like the tree structure I created. Could you please tell me if there is a way how to ignore a few datasets in a tree of datasets to be recursively snapshotted or at least to be ignored for raw send and receive? So for part, that first one, um, you might be able to use ZFS channel programs, which are little Lua scripts, to be able to walk all those datasets and basically recursively create the snapshot, except for check for a user property like you know, uh, you know, don't snapshot me or whatever you might call the property, um, and then not create the snapshot for those. Some uh, maybe slightly easier, if not slightly unsatisfying way to do it is just create the recursive snapshot from the root like you are, and then delete it from the couple of data sets that you don't care about. Now, until recently, it would if you tried to do a uh, capital R ZFS replication, it would complain if any of the data sets in the tree did not contain the snapshot you're trying to send. But a recent commit into OpenZFS uh, master branch allows you to demote that to a warning instead of a critical error. So it doesn't stop you from actually doing a send recursively of that top level dataset and just ignoring the couple of uh, datasets that do not contain that snapshot. I don't know how that applies to raw, but I imagine it's probably okay because raw is mostly just sending 
the data in its already compressed, already encrypted type format rather than actually uh, recreating the blocks. So while you can't do it right now, in the future version, in, in ZFS 2.2, uh, you will be able to uh, delete the snapshot from the data sets that you don't want it and be able to replicate it without it complaining. Uh, the other option is I use a script called ZXFer to manage the sending, and it does each data set separately. And so it will just notice that you didn't create a snapshot or deleted the snapshot on, you know, foobar baz, but not foobar or whatever, uh, and be able to do that. For the tree structure, the other thing that I've talked about before is you can do the two different routes, but manage the mount points so they still make the tree structure you like in the file system, but live in different places in the uh, ZFS hierarchy. Um, I think one reason I proposed this was to have a slash USR where user bin and user S bin and so on were read only, but user local wasn't, uh, so that you could basically have an immutable OS that you could, you know, turn the immutable bit off to do an upgrade, but only then and, and not have the OS be changed otherwise and things like that. Mm. Uh, so maybe that would help. Uh, but yeah, ZFS channel programs might allow you to be more selective about the recursive snapshot. It basically allows you to take the, the ZFS lock, uh, do a bunch of operations and sync it as one transaction. So I think it would allow you to create all of those snapshots and you know read the property and ignore a couple of those data sets mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, oh, it's certainly interesting. Yeah. And but the easiest way is the one uh, you mentioned of just having two different subtrees under your encryption root, uh, one for stuff that's important to copy and one that it's not. It's just I understand why you find some of that unsatisfactory just because of the way uh, you mm -hmm. like to have the hierarchy. And uh, the second part of the question is sometime I work on something and I manually snapshot the project data set. For example, a day later, I want to revert all the changes. The problem is that in order to roll back, I have to use ZFS rollback-r that deletes all automatic snapshots that happened after my manual snapshot. Deleting automatic snapshots is cool with me, but not cool with the raw send and receive. So by doing this, I basically break it. And to fix it, I have to destroy all ZFS data sets on the secondary VPS and send all 250 gigabytes again. That's both time-consuming and not very secure, since during the send, all my data are only on a single VPS. Also, I don't have unlimited bandwidth, so I don't want to do it too often. You shouldn't have to do that. You just need to do the rollback on the other side as well, and then it would just... Your script has to deal with sending an incremental from the point you rolled back to to whatever the new feature is. But is I think you should be able to get away with just manually doing the same ZFS rollback on the secondary VPS, and then you should be able to resume. I don't know if raw has any particular problem with that. Uh, it may be not so much that raw is the problem, is that the recursive mode, the capital R, is the problem where you're combining all these data sets into one send stream. You, know, you don't want to resend all the changes since last week to the other VPS, just the one data set. And again, that's where it comes down to having that, um, like ZX for does, of doing each data set separately has some advantages for that. One thing I've thought of is being able to have a mode of ZFS send that is very similar to the capital R, but instead of just being this range across everything in it, being able to just read from standard input a list of data set and snapshot ranges so that you know if you were partway through replicating 100 data sets from machine one to machine two, you know, it, both sides contain snapshots one, two, and three of all 100 data sets. Uh, but while replicating snapshot four, only 50 of the 100 data sets got updated. 
now your choices are to either do each of the other 50 manually and get everybody up to number four and then be able to do a recursive again or resend the data for the 50 data sets to get them from version three to version four which isn't very nice either where i was saying uh the way the zfs send format works it could handle it you just don't have a way to actually tell zfs what you want to generate and that's why i thought uh, a zfs send dash some new letter that would allow you to specify from standard in here's the list of all the snapshots I want you to combine into one send stream uh, would be cool. And that's on my to-do list somewhere. Uh, I hope someone beats me to it because it's probably going to be a while before I get that far down my to-do yeah. list. Could ZREPL do that maybe? Uh, no, I think uh, both in the case of ZREPL and ZXFer, you basically just fall back to doing each data set by itself mm. uh, without the recursive mode. Uh, the only time this is, the, the only downside to doing one at a time is that in my uh, in the scale engine case, we have 200 data sets on, on a server and maybe 100 of those, you know, when we're taking a snapshot every 15 minutes, most of them don't change at all. And so we spend a lot more time calculating the list of differences and sending snapshots that contain 600 bytes of data. Whereas if you combine those into one send stream, it'd be a lot faster. Right. Uh, but it's only about latency of just, you know, ZX for opens and closes the SSH session a lot, which it doesn't really need to do. Mm, okay. Uh, and so it's just some things that can be optimized by providing this capability. Okay, good. Uh, hopefully that gets you a couple pointers to uh, update this one. And it's certainly an interesting setup. Uh, that is pretty much all that we have for you this week, unless someone else <laughs> among the moderators here has something. Good, then uh, we're... we'll grateful that you were with us uh, another episode after episode 400 and uh, keep it uh, coming we will certainly provide further episodes and uh, send us questions as always content is appreciated to feedback at bsd.tv 